Mark your calendars because this Friday, May 13th, Feminist Frequency is celebrating our 13th birthday with a spooky, horror-filled, all-day charity stream. Join us for 13 hours of thrills and chills with film critics, horror authors, and spooky streamers. That's Friday, May 13th, starting at 9 a.m. live on twitch.tv slash femfreak. The way he, like, walks across the beach and, like, through darkness yeah. and then just emerges into the light and says, like, with the most, like, smooth L.A. power player confidence you can imagine, like, hello, dude, mm. I'm Jackie Treehorn or whatever. The Coen brothers know how to make movies that make me want to do the Martin Scorsese, you know, or the Bong Joon-ho, like, to me, it's cinema, quote. Like, it's just, yeah. mm. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and today is our 200th episode. Can you believe it? <laughs> so, of course, I've roped in two women who do not abide. Carolyn Pettit. <laughs> hey, I never said I don't abide. Who said I don't abide? Anyway, fine. I'll take it. I don't abide. <laughs> it's just, just roll with it. Ebony, oh my goodness, and Ebony Adams, here we go. Yeah, clearly we abide, we're back, we're here. That's true. The abideth. Mm -hmm. But don't you want to like not abide as like a yeah, role in life? Yeah, that's why I left. You know? I was like, listen, I'm bringing this shit down. So I'm going to, it's time for this podcast to graduate into what it could be. Um, and you were like, yeah, Ebony, I've been wondering how to get rid of your dumb ass. Yeah, that's exactly what People, happened. This not, is exactly what that, our conversations that was, it was are like not behind Ebony. the scenes. It was not Ebony being like, I don't have time for you anymore. No, That's it was definitely. Actually, those are my exact words. Anita, <laughs> I don't have time for you anymore. I do not abide. Friends, I've missed you. I missed you too. Although, y'all, yeah. like, I see Anita, not regularly, but, you know, often enough. And clearly we still talk and stuff. But I never get to talk to Carol. Um, and so, like, I'm just super excited about the podcast today. And then I won't talk to her again for another six months until Anita's like, hey, guess what? You know, I need you it's to It's another come anniversary. And, yeah, I need you to <laughs> talk about this. Well, everybody misses you all. Although I do have to say, um, Ebony suggested Kat, and I think Kat mm -hmm. is fucking amazing. So I'm oh, pretty, yeah. pretty stoked to have a stellar uh, co-host that is better than... All of us, maybe except for Carolyn. <laughs> I feel like Carolyn's good. Anyways, um, but yeah, it's nice to have you back and to see your faces and yeah. talk about the movies and stuff. Um, I <laughs> and feel like stuff. and stuff. I feel like I was kind of shocked that two hundred came rolled around. Like, how long have we been doing this for? Like five years, right? It's been yeah, because I mean, it's yeah. I mean, say you do an episode every week. Which we, you know, there have been, we we've taken to. hiatuses mm -hmm. and things, but I mean, there's 52 weeks in a year. So that's like four. If you listen to one episode a week, you basically have like four years worth now of episodes of FFR, which is pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. Oh, so about. Carol left the podcast and went to math school, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I, I'm like, 200 divided by, you know, <laughs> like do that. That was that math lady gif, you know, the lady with the, the face and the triangles and so, uh, all that. I, I don't know she, what you were talking about, but I'm into it. You don't know the math lady gif? Like math lady gif doesn't <laughs> oh, right, conjure an right. image in your mind of like, uh, you know, woman 
like right. deep get- in thought or confusion as triangles and shit. Right. Okay. In the so air. if you had said maybe like confusion, lady, that's that's the mm. the trigger word for me. Okay. Is confusion. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't just made up the term like math, math lady gift. Yeah. But yeah, in my mind, I, it's math lady gift. Anyway, L- Anita. Last night I watched um, Eyes Wide Shut. Don't ask. Oh and- lord. <laughs> oh, no. And there's into a- it. I wish you'd invited me over. There, you wouldn't have come anyways. Ebony doesn't I leave I totally house. would have for that bonkers banana soup ass movie. Um, there's a scene where um, Nicole Kidman is doing math lessons with her kid. And it was like, mm. if one man has $2.50 and the other one has $1.75, what man has more money? Or like, which one mm. is more money? And I was like, wow, I'm so glad I'm not allowed near children because I can't I do, had to pause the movie to get out some scratch that. paper. <laughs> be like, God I think us. I know, but no, listen. Um, That's what I took away from that movie. <laughs> among other things, that bonkers movie, I love Sidney Pollock and have spent, you know, the last hmm. week sort of re-digging myself into my obsession with like 70s paranoia movies. And it was kicked off by mm-hmm. watching, re-watching Three Days of the Condor. Mm-hmm. There, Listen, maybe I'll talk about Sidney Pollock in um in the freak out section because I just think like there are certain things that he does that no one does better. Anyway. Great. I um I have COVID. Woo! So mm. I have done nothing but watch movies. I've watched Good. so many goddamn fucking movies. I don't feel like I ever want to watch a movie again, which is not true. But you know when you like mm-hmm. are kind of yeah. stuck on your couch and not moving and you're oh, like, yeah. this is the worst thing ever. Uh, and I've like descended into low-key madness with my choices. So here, here we are. I why not, really why not watch the Big Lebowski? The, um, extras. The extras, oh, the, wow. the after party. What? I haven't been, it's been like a month the and bonus. a half since I've been off the podcast. <laughs> I no longer remember how any of it works, what the names are. Who are you? All people? right, y'all. So the Big Lebowski by the Coen brothers has earned its cult classic status over the years. While not doing impressive box office numbers upon its release in 1998, fans have flocked to this film over the years via Big Lebowski-themed conferences and festivals, midnight screenings, live theater recreations, and even a religion, dudism. The Big Lebowski starring Jeff Bridges as the dude follows a meandering, nearly incomprehensible mystery to get a rug replaced, to save a wife, to retrieve a car, and to win a bowling tournament. But, oh, um, the film boasts an impressive cast with John Goodman, Julianne Moore, Steve Buscemi, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Tara Reid, John Turturro. Turturro. (laughs) Turturro and Sam Mm -hmm. Elliott. But most importantly... For today's show, The Big Lebowski is rated as the 200th top movie on the IMDb Top 250 movie list, which is not a questionable list at all. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Now, Anita, let's start here. You were not particularly excited about talking about The Big Lebowski because you said you don't like it, right? So, No, I'm I'm not a fan of this movie. Are you a fan of other Coen Brothers movies? Or you just not like their jam at all? Um, yeah, I'm not a huge Coen Brothers fan, but I like can appreciate some of their films and what they do. Mm-hmm. I think The Big Lebowski feels to me like a movie that was made by and for teenage boys, and I think that Whoa. it's and I think that it's a movie that that like imprinted on a lot of people. Like we did an episode with Walter Chow, who talked about sort of the bi- biological imprinting of films, and I feel like my engagement with big fans of the Big Lebowski are that. Like, it hits you at a very particular time in your life and, like, 
you got really high and you watched it and it has all these quotable lines. But I've I've tried watching it a few times now and I wasn't like mad about rewatching it because I was curious if I'd have a different perspective. But it's still like, I mean, I laughed. There are things in it that I can appreciate, but it's definitely not a movie for me. That's interesting. So it comes out in 1998. I was in grad school at the time. So definitely um, not a teenager at that moment. And I, I wasn't in love with it the first time I saw it. But I have since really grown to love this movie, you know, and I'm always happy to, to rewatch it. But it's interesting that you, um, that you talk about like the imprinting of a movie because I, I do love when that happens, when a movie for whatever reason just sort of sinks into your gray matter. And then no matter what transpires afterwards, no matter, you know, what realizations you come to later on in life about, you know, the technical aspects of the film, the message of the film, whatever, it always kind of like the the remnants, that mold is already there. But um, But I would think that this would be a really frustrating for teenage viewers in some ways, not that they're not smart, but I think there's so much going on that would have just like passed completely over their heads, not just like in the story, but the way that it's told. Cause I mean, so much is like a hearkening back to like noir tropes, right? Even though they're not immediately apparent, um, you know, and, and other forms of story. I don't know. I'm not making a lot of sense here, but. Well, what's your relationship, Carolyn, to this movie? Uh, this is I, I, this is only the second time I've seen it. Um, I I didn't see it right when it came out. I saw it some years later. I sort of had a detached admiration for it. Um, and you know, I've yeah, so I've just always been aware of of it. Of course, as the larger cultural phenomenon that it is, and that it's a film that some that some people really really love. But uh, yeah, I mean, I just I, I happened to see that it was we were looking for something thematically fitting some way to shoehorn the number 200 <laughs> into the topic of today's episode. And I noticed that this was the 200th ranked film on the IMDb Top 250, where somehow the Shawshank Redemption has been like the the number one film of all time for, so for like forever, which is like ridiculous. I mean, whatever, that movie's like fine. <laughs> uh, but anyway, let's not talk, I don't want to... Let's not talk about the Shawshank Redemption. Um, That'll be the 300th episode. Bye. Yeah, well, sure. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I have to say, so on this rewatch, uh, very, very complicated feelings, definitely aspects of it that I dislike or that I I, I am critical of. But I guess, you know, I, I, will, I, I do think that this is a film. So um, there, are, there are those films that just seem to delight in in being films and that have a kind of inherently cinematic like inventiveness and energy to them. And, you know, for me, uh, maybe Singing in the Rain is like maybe the ultimate example of just a film that is pure cinema. Like it is, it is top to bottom a m movie. It couldn't exist in any other form. And it just exudes cinematic delight and energy. And the Big Lebowski for me is was very pleasurable to watch as just a purely like cinematic experience. I think the Coen brothers in this movie, uh, yeah, they they it feels like it feels just like a film that loves being a film. Like mm. so, for instance, there's just so many moments in it. I think that are kind of cinematically delightful. Like there's a moment where, um. Uh, the dude, uh, to use his preferred uh, nomenclature, like 
gets clobbered and there's like this fire, this uh, fireworks, you know, uh, effect when he gets clobbered mm-hmm. and knocked out. And then next thing you know, like you're seeing the blue, bluish lights of Los Angeles, like far down below as he's like flying high above. And just that transition that visually from the like the firework into that. The film is just filled with those kinds of like visual, um, you know, visually like distinctive and kind of expressive little touches and details and moments. And so in that regard, just as, as like something that, you know, it isn't just, um, uh, you know, uh, the kind of film where, you know, it's a camera pointed at characters talking to each other and doesn't, you know, it's good. You can tell the Coen brothers are constantly kind of the type of filmmakers who are constantly asking themselves, like, how do we like, you know, harness like what's uniquely cinematic mm. to to kind of fuel like how this story looks and feels and how it plays out. Um, uh, yeah. Um, I so I can yeah. Go ahead. No, I um, I think that there's an energy to this movie. You know, like every now and again, you'll watch a movie and you're like, wow, it feels like they had a lot of fun making this movie, mm. right? Yeah, Where you're just yeah, like, yeah, and whatever making movies is hard, but I feel like there's just such a like spirit of like absurdness that everybody kind of understands. Um, mm-hmm. I, I find myself yeah. drawn to films where like an entire cast and crew understands exactly what is yeah meaning to right. happen and then it happens and it's all just like in sync. And I think that this movie, mm-hmm. there's an appeal to it for that, for that uh, aspect of it. I like Jeff Bridges, I think is extremely charismatic and like yeah. <laughs> it, that, that's another thing that I think really pulls you into this movie is he, it's just is so hard to stop watching, right? You're just like so mm-hmm. kind of engaged with him and what he's going through and his frustrations with everybody and his like desire to just be like this chill stoner dude, but like people are just like yeah. yanking his chain, you know? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. there's something interesting about the, the the way this film mythologizes the dude. I mean, it very explicitly mythologizes him in the sense of, it, it, you know, it plays with sort of the, you know, uh, it has a kind of m- mythic Western uh, quality to it via the Sam Elliott, like, right. narration, right? Where the dude is sort of situated as this, like, kind of mythic hero figure through the narration that kind of opens the film. But the dude is very much not, I mean, he is just a totally hapless kind of loser who at every step of the way in this film has no control whatsoever of what's going, you know, over what's going on, has no idea what's going on, is constantly wrong about what is actually <laughs> going on. You know, even his even his friend Walter uh, qu- kind of just constantly complicates things and makes things even worse for him. And so, you know, you think of the typical, uh, you know, maybe... Uh, uh, the heroic like pi or he's kind of thrust into the into a you know private eye roll in this film but you know rather than like all the pieces kind of adding up and there being some like really satisfying kind of conclusion at the end where he gets you know where the the pi the male hero quote unquote solves things and and uh is successful vanquishes some some evil force or some villain or what have you like you know, this is a story about people, you know, and a central figure who ha- who are just 
being taken for a ride by life, like at every step of the way. And um, I, yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, it, exactly as you say, Carol, like the dude is the is the embodiment of the tumbling tumbleweed, that song that opens yeah. the film, right? <laughs> he is not a driver of the plot in any way. He is ultimately exactly. reactive in every sense. And yet there is something so charming about the way that he lets things happen to him and offers yes. the most like feckless sort of, you know, response um, to people who either... Um, inadvertently or deliberately seek to, you know, sabotage um, his just like living the life that he has set for himself, wearing a bathrobe, wearing like, you know, comfy Zubas, writing checks mm -hmm. for 69 cents so he can keep his white Russian habit. By the way, I'm having a white Russian this morning in honor of the <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, and yeah, just this idea that, you know, he's the dude. He's not Jeff Lebowski. He's the dude, you know, the, mm -hmm. the eponym. It's like he is a he is a, a type of figure in the way that like Sam yeah. Elliott's character, the stranger, is a type of figure. Like it, no matter what Coen Brothers movie you're talking about, it's all ultimately character driven, right? Like mm -hmm. characters welcome here. And that can be off-putting sometimes if the the kind of like, you know, exaggerated you know, ludicrous, you know, absurdity of a particular character doesn't slot into a groove that you find entertaining, it can throw off the whole thing, you know, for you. Um, but I think that's, you know, that's a through line of their films. And you think about the film that immediately preceded this one, Fargo, right? Huge critical and commercial success. And then they follow it up with this, which no one quite knows what to do with at the time. And then after this is, oh, brother, where art thou? Again, you know, seeming to, to, to receive like a much more um, sort of like universal acclaim. I mean, for a long time, The Big Lebowski was seen as kind of an aberration um, in their work. But I think like, yeah. you know, with the the benefit of, you know, 25 years or whatever since it came out, it's, it's, it's since been recognized as like, oh, no, this is very fully the kind of work they've always been doing. I was reading. Yeah. I oh, no, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, Carolyn. Uh, okay. I mean, yeah, I, I, well, I, you know, I was thinking about, of course, you know, because this is, this is feminist frequency radio after all. Uh, I was, I was thinking about the role of women in this film mm -hmm. and how this is like in a lot of ways, you know, like you have Bunny, uh, Bunny Lebowski, right? Who um, is the, in a way is like reduced. There's an early scene where like uh, the dude uh, 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 takes careful notice of her toes, mm -hmm. uh, right? Her And and she asks him to like blow on her, her nail polish and all this. And uh, anyway, you know, it's almost in a way like she's kind of reduced to her, toes mm -hmm. in some regard or like the toes become a kind of symbol of her throughout this film more more than she's like an actual person right but i mean yes like obviously this film very 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 much um uh primarily concerns men uh almost entirely but i, I mean i do i i do think it's there, there's something interesting about how yeah these are men who i mean um 
you know, the, the big, the big like stakes in their lives prior to these events are like the outcome of the, yeah, this bowling tournament, which they, you know, are so invested in. These are men who, again, like, uh, Walter, it just is, is like, is like delusional about, uh, the world that he lives in. And, uh, and it just reacts just completely out of proportion to literally everything all the time. So, you know, I do think that that there is a sense in which, like, um, aside, I, I do sort of, I do understand how the dude, I, I do think sometimes this world, I mean, I think it's interesting that this film is situated in during the Gulf War, mm-hmm. and uh, it only makes very passing kind of mention of that, and yet it seems to think that that's important in the sense that in the early monologue, Sam Elliott makes a very, you know, pointed mention of, like, the dude was the the man for that time. Like he, right. just, he just fits right in there. And it's like, is it the sense of like, uh, just the national, you know, in what way did the Coen brothers mean that? Like, is it this larger narrative that's just completely constructed and false? And we as a country and as a people are all in a sense being taken for a ride. And the, and so is the dude. Um, I think it's that. You know, and also like, it is a, it was a time um, of frustrated masculinity, right? And every yeah. single character in this film exemplifies that. Well, a- apart from Bunny and Julianne Moore's character, right? But there is not a single sympathetic character, like truly sympathetic character in this film, except perhaps for Donnie, who died, poor Donnie, who dies, and whose ashes get scattered on the wind, right? But everyone else, <laughs> like, they are such figures of ridiculous manhood um, mm-hmm. in this film, um, you know, exaggerated, you know, um, puffed up with their own importance in some cases, obsequious and toadying in other instances, um, you know, arrogant or, you know, completely obsessed with, you know, banal things to the exclusion of more important things, you know, delusional, like every single, you know, yeah, man like, in this film the, offers just yeah. like another horrible way of being a man. <laughs> right. I mean, even the big Lebowski of the title mm-hmm. is fully constructed, like, you know, a facade of a, of a, you know, wealthy and powerful m- man, right? Yeah. Um, as we sort of learn. Um, I, yeah. I, I think another thing that kind of dates this film is um, it's really offensive. Like, there's so many jokes, like, really... Mm-hmm inappropriate uh jokes that i don't think would fly today and Mm -hmm. you sort of brace a little bit for those right and they they kind of keep going and going and you're like okay like i'm not excusing it as an of its time but Mm -hmm. like Mm. it just feels like as i've been watching a million fucking movies you're just like oh there's a period of time in which like it was racy and cool and interesting and and okay quote unquote to like make racist sexist jokes or Mm -hmm. jokes about ability um, and and it was mm-hmm. just a part of the like ways that stories were told. And I'm really glad mm-hmm. that we like don't do that as much anymore. Or there's not as much acceptance of it, but it is kind of a cost that we have to pay to engage with some of this stuff from this period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I have not seen it, but I know that John Turturro made um, Jesus saves. Yeah, you know, Jesus and which I think is on saves. Netflix, maybe. <clears throat> And I thought that was so interesting because I recognize that like um, his character, the Jesus, the Jesus, um, the Jesus, you know, like was depicted as this like, you know, 
comic figure in the film, like someone that you could laugh at, right? Um, as if his particular eccentricities were on par with the other sort of bad behaviors in the film. But I was like, no, this dude is, you know, of an entirely different, like it's a different level of fucked up in this. We're talking about a dude who's like, you know, exposed himself to children. And so I remember thinking like, no, no, this is this is not the sort of thing that like you can just make a joke about and have this be, you know, one more funny thing about the movie. This should be, this should land as solidly horrifying. And so the fact that then that character, you know, um, has generated enough interest and enough like affection for John Turturro to then create Jesus Saves afterwards. And I, I always thought that was weird. Well, also, isn't John Turturro Italian? <laughs> and this character mm-hmm. is uh, like a really egregious Latinx mm-hmm. stereotype. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah. I mean, in addition to what you said, like that was very troubling. And again, mm-hmm. feels like of its time, like, there's just little things about, um, uh, you know, the 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 joke about not like not the preferred nomenclatures become like a mm-hmm. a, a term, like a mm-hmm. quotable thing, but mm-hmm. it comes out of this extended joke about Asian American, they're Chinese mm-hmm. American or Chinese in general, mm-hmm. um, folks, and mm-hmm. like it's not like it's. It's not like it's a joke that where you're like, oh, yeah, it was wrong to say that. It's like they just continued making the joke because it's a funny joke to make, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, right? Like it was those sorts of things here and there. Um, Even something as simple, even like, you know, Carolyn, you were talking about how Bunny is reduced to her toe, um, which Mm -hmm. there's a word for that. I mean. Yeah. uh, uh, Is it? I mean, objectification, I don't know, but there's. Yeah, there, it's objectification. Yeah, some uh, whatever. <laughs> Anyways, um, but like just the fact that like the wife is, you know, like de- like she's like, I'll give you a blowjob for a thousand dollars. Like I ma- mm-hmm. clearly married this guy for money, and blah, you know, like she just she's yeah, she's, she's a, a throwaway, complete, and she's a stereotype, yeah, and like complete, you know, yes. Julianne Moore's character Maude, the fact that like. Mm-hmm. You know, she she plays this eccentric, rich artist woman, um, which is fine. But then the fact that she's like tricking him into k- having a baby with her, you just yeah. like the women are all manipulative and shitty and, yeah. you yeah. know, in out yeah. for their own gain in a way that right. like isn't equivalent or equitable or on par with the way that the men are right. shitty in this movie. Yeah. And I think, you know, that some would say, well, that's the film uh, riffing on noir. Right types where women yes the women are you know either that yeah they are in some way dangerous or manipulative or uh what have you um that, that's not an excuse that's just uh at all it's just a thing that a way in which this film is like it's doing it's replicating uh, an old pattern sort of self-consciously that is itself you know um like can perhaps be be uh, used in ways that are self-reflective and critical and eye-opening, but that's, you know, I don't yeah, think that's, that's what was yeah, You know what's here. interesting is that, um, and I don't know that this is accurate, but I read that Charlize Theron was originally intended for the role of Bunny. <clears throat> and I think about what her performance would have been like and what she would have brought to that role. And I think it, I wonder if the reason why she ultimately was not cast is because it would have made that linkage to noir a bit too clear. I think, you know, the way that an actor like Charlize Theron, who God bless Tara Reid, but 
There's not hmm. a lot of like depth and nuance to this performance, right? <laughs> Charlize Theron, <laughs> no, no, I but, think. I mean, which which probably is how it was, you know, I suspect that how it was directed as well. Like, I mean, right, there's a difference but, between like the bubbly dunce character versus the hot seductress character. Right. right? And which so is like what if you, I am, to yeah. me, I, my, my belief, which might be wrong, is that Charlize Theron would have been perfectly wonderful you know, portraying that like bubbly ditz character, but you would always be aware right. that there was a sharp mind at work behind it, that it was in fact a performance. And so perhaps that <laughs> was yeah. not something that the filmmakers wanted, which to me, um, I, I do think like, I would have found it very satisfying to have, you know, that sort of awareness brought to that role. Mm. Which mm. Is, I don't know, would have been more satisfying yeah. for me, but anyway. I I don't know how relevant this is, but I read or heard somewhere that like the Coen brothers, when they cast, like they cast specifically on appearance in a really, like not only, right? But mm -hmm. um, like they care so much about the way that somebody looks and wanting to fill that like particular mm -hmm. visual style, right? And which mm -hmm. is why they have a lot of really like, I want to say kind of like actors. strange or yeah, like just mm -hmm. people who like have so, a very yeah. specific kind of look to them. That's like yeah. memorable and like yeah. interesting. Right. It's not cookie cutter. Uh, I, I think one of the great examples of that, and he was a Coen brothers, like stable, uh, you know, one of the, in their stable of actors is John Polito. Yeah. Who, uh, right. Who shows up as the, the brother the actual private eye. <laughs> Yeah, the Seamus, the dick, unlike mm -hmm. you, um, in in like the following him around in the little Volkswagen Beetle, like John Polito was definitely one of those actors, wonderful character actors who has such that such a distinct look to him that kind of you know, fits him into like, you know, that to me is like part of the. The great like the Coen brothers are, in a sense, a throwback to the great Hollywood tradition of the era, the 40s. And, you know, and whatnot, when character actors were just like so much a part of of the experience of going to films, you know, actors like Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet and stuff in films like Casablanca and, you know, the Maltese Falcon, like the Coen brothers know still how to deploy character actors, mm -hmm. whereas, you know, today, more and more, it's like we, we don't... um like I'm thinking about, so the Batman, the new, ba you know, the Batman, the new Batman movie, <laughs> it's like, um, you know, they cast, I mean, I, I actually think Colin Farrell is, re is really good as the penguin in mm -hmm. that film. But I also think like, why cast Colin Farrell as the penguin in this film? Right. Like, why not cast some character actor or something who actually kind of has like the look that you're going for and who can bring that quality to it? So, you know, I, I feel like we're moving away and have been for a long time from 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 just, yeah, the great use of character actors. But that's, you know, yeah, Colin I, Brothers. I think that's so interesting mm. because um, Robert Pattinson, Colin Farrell, mm. Brad Pitt, to an extent, some of the things that, you know, um, folks have pointed out is that these are the type of people who have like leading man looks, but... Mm -hmm would be much more interesting and are often more interesting in these character actor roles. But then sure. if you're giving those roles to these people who are like, you know, right. traditionally attractive, what room, where do the character actors go? You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, we, I think me. we have moved away from it. It's, inter it's, it's something that goes on in what's his name? The Royal Tenenbaums guy, right? Like 
He's uh, someone Anderson, yeah. who also will only move so far into casting interesting looking people and character actors. He much prefers, and this is someone who mm-hmm. obviously is obsessed with the aesthetics, right? The look of a film. It's planned down to a minute level. Um, so this is not, you know, by accident, but this is someone who would prefer to hire conventionally attractive people and character actor them up right. rather than actually cast interesting looking people to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, this I have no transition. I just this conversation is also reminding me a little bit of how when um animation uh casting directors started casting famous mm. people as opposed yeah. to yes. all of the amazing voice actors. Right. And that was right. like a shift like, that happened in the nineties. Um and it just reminds me of that, right? Of mm-hmm. of just moving oh. towards the big names as opposed mm-hmm. to yeah. a wider swath of talent. Yeah. Like I saw it, you know, like, yeah, why the fuck does Chris Pratt have to be the main voice in every fucking cartoon? And I mean, I saw a tweet not too long ago, and I think this is exactly right. Like it's it's because the studios, you know, want those famous actors, those faces that people feel this connection with Mm -hmm. to be able to do the promotional, you know, everything after, you know, on the talk shows and interviews and everything for the film or, you know, that's at least part of it. But yeah, it's, it doesn't actually make the film better mm-hmm. to have, you know, the, the, these because voice acting is a different talent. It doesn't require a person to look a certain way, et right. cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, it's a shame. There's a video. Um, so, uh, mm, I, uh, Lindsay Ellis, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know what else to people can have their thoughts. Uh, whatever it, whatever. Uh, we're not yeah. going there. But Lindsay Ellis made okay. a video about this particular thing. Um, I. I forget what it's called. I'll link it in the show notes, but it starts with when Robin Williams was cast as the yes, voice of the genie in Aladdin, and it all kind of went down from there. It's a very interesting video talking specifically yeah. about this. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, to come back to the Big Lebowski, um, I, 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 I do enjoy, like, even acknowledging all the, tr- the, the troubling stuff that surrounds, say, the John, the John Turturro character, Jesus. Um, one thing I think this film does repeatedly um, is just introduce characters in this way that lends them this kind of exciting mythic, yeah. you know, larger than life energy. And so the, the the whole early sequence with Jesus, where like that amazing like Spanish language version of Hotel California is playing, mm-hmm. like yes, I acknowledge all the problems with that character, but man, cinematically, like there's something like exciting and seductive about that sequence. And similarly, like later in the film. You have uh, Ben Gazzara as uh, Jackie, Treehorn. Jackie Treehorn. And like the way he like walks across the beach and like through darkness yeah. and then just emerges into the light and says like with the most like smooth L.A. power player confidence you can imagine like, hello, dude, mm. I'm Jackie Treehorn or whatever. It's like it, like the again, this is just the Coen brothers know how to make like movies that make me want to do the the little the Martin Scorsese you know or the Bong Joon-ho like to me it's cinema quote like it's just yeah. mm, it's like cinema it's like yes you're you, you're leveraging just all the tools at your disposal to like elevate and make this more like electrifying and you know interesting uh to 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 watch and to to hear and um yeah so just like on an aesthetic level on a tonal level um, I, I, I really like this film and, and I love in the final sequence, the final section of the film, there's this bit where you're in the bowling alley 
and it's like quiet. I think it's just after like Donnie has died and there's like this man like doing the pushing the thing, like cleaning the um the the lanes and you see the machines kind of spinning and it's like there's it's like in this film there's so much chaos just twirling everywhere everything is chaos and life is chaos but then there's like the beautiful order of bowling at its center like the i don't know there's it's it's just it's fascinating to me it's um yeah it's a film i definitely enjoy and appreciate more like on just an aesthetic level or as like an experience cinematic experience Mm, mm -hmm. You know, while definitely acknowledging um, that it's got a lot, you know, a lot of, um, yes, uh, outdated or, I mean, even troubling then um, shit in it. Yeah. Uh, According to the Wikipedia article, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, whatever, but um, the... They pulled so many, sorry, the Coen brothers, when they wrote this, their inspirations were pulled from so many different people and like little Mm. bits from Mm. a lot of different sources, which I thought was kind of interesting. So, for example, um, one of the characters that one of them is based on uh, actually was trying to find a a car that was stolen and found an eighth grade (laughs) report in shoved in between the seats. Like that's a real thing that happened. Right. And so then that Uh gets integrated into the story Um, that the mod, the artist is based on an artist who actually used to fly and fling paint. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and there's just Mm -hmm. like all these little details. And I, I feel like there's something, you know, writers always pull from all kinds of sources in their life that they Mm -hmm. experience. But the the sort of piecemeal of the movie um, yeah. feels like it makes a lot more sense and like fits the origin story of how it came together in some ways, you know? Right, right. I love right. that idea um, that there are just weird, interesting characters around us, you know, mm-hmm. um, that absolutely absurd things arise out of the most banal of circumstances and environments, you know? And well, the idea that, like, these incredible characters, and, like, you know, um, uh, Jeff Bridges' character, the dude, is based on a friend of the Coens, right? The idea that there is someone out there who is actually like that, you know? I find well, and wonderful. Also, the the bowling alley, um, the, the people that this is based off of would play softball, and they're like, that's not good for our movie. So they made it a bowling mm-hmm. alley because mm-hmm. you can like sit and drink and talk and have conversations. Uh, but also mm-hmm. they talked about how it is a very specific moment in like late 50s, early 60s Americana mm-hmm. that is of its time and really wanting to like fill, like really wanting to um, expose that or have that be a central like aesthetic mm-hmm. to, to the film. So I thought mm-hmm. like, all the choices that filmmakers make are very deliberate and specific, and I think mm-hmm. they're fascinating. And and when it all comes together in something like this, where it feels so cohesive in its vision, mm-hmm. um, it, it, I don't know. I find that exciting. Yeah. More interesting movies, even if you don't ultimately, like if it's not your jam, you know, but just an mm. interesting movie where people are trying shit. Love it. Yeah. Uh, in in the bonus, uh, I might bring up a movie that is that that I feel that weird try about. some shit and maybe <laughs> I'm interested to Real hear what that too. is. Um, and before we wrap up, I do want to say like, so this film also, if if you saw, if you you know watched this film and you you liked it or you're interested in films like it, I want to also recommend a film, a Robert Altman film that is also like an L.A. Private Eye Odyssey. 
that in which the the central character that I think is very much like I think this film is very much in the same tradition of in which the central character kind of is you know being yanked along and things are and is the one being played and things are totally out of his control. Um, it's uh, the long goodbye. Mm. It stars Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe, but you know so in. Philip Marlowe is a famous old, Isn't this you know, Gina time. Davis, too? Oh, no, that's the kiss goodbye. No, the that's the last, that's the <laughs> long like, kiss goodnight. <laughs> kiss yeah. goodnight, yeah, so lo- totally different movie. Yeah, yeah. But the long goodbye, really great. Robert Altman, L.A., um, Odyssey. Elliot Gould is fantastic as Philip Marlowe. As, you know, it's a, it's clearly like doing a deconstruction of Marlowe as, you know, in the, these, the crime novels of the, I think, 30s and 40s where he mm-hmm. originated you know, very different kind of take on him as a more hapless loser type, just trying his best to make it as a PI in LA and things are completely out of control. So uh, really an entertaining film as well to maybe make as a companion piece Mm -hmm. with this one. There were two moments when the dude really won me over in this film. Mm. The first was when he said fucking fascist to the Mm -hmm. cop (laughs) And the second was when he said he hated the Eagles. Yes. And I was like, yes, of course. Aww. We all do. The Eagles are the worst. Man, can you change the song? <laughs> Fucking Eagles. Yep. I appreciated that. All right, y'all. We'll be right back. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you are, we would love you to support us to keep making it. You know, if you become one of our patrons, not only are you going to do that and allow us to keep making this every week, but also you get access to some perks like bonus episodes, uh, participate in polls to determine future episodes, access to our Discord server, which is only available to patrons, uh, and, you know, I don't know, other things. If you love us, help support us. You can do that at patreon.com slash femfreak. Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Who, Carolyn, you got to freak out. Yeah, I do. Um, I So last time I was on the show, uh, I freaked out about a book that I had just read by noted lesbian novelist and nonfiction writer Sarah Shulman called The Gentrification of the Mind. And immediately after I read The Gentrification of the Mind, I read another book of hers, uh, that absolutely, you know, blew me away. Um, it's called Conflict is Not Abuse. And it is very difficult, actually, to sum up, like, in neatly what this book is about. Uh, but, you know, it's in a nutshell, it's about, I, I would say, how how both, like, individuals, like, everything, everything from individuals to, you know, nation states and nations, like, individuals who um, are either like uh, have internalized either uh, supremacy ideology, like say, you know, white supremacy or what, whatever the form of supremacy is, or who have internalized trauma as part of their just uh, narrative and, and part of, you know, or they've been through trauma, like will often um, in situations of conflict claim abuse uh, when uh, abuse is not happening. And so like, like, uh, using it as actually, so the declaration of abuse then becomes a tool of, uh, by which people maintain, try to maintain power. Mm-hmm. So an, an example, I guess, just off the cuff in my own mind might be the situation where the woman in Central Park 
uh, w where Christian mm -hmm. Cooper, the black man, like, um, you know, asked her to uh, not walk her dog in the bramble. And like this woman like started like, you know, hyperventilating and like acting as if you know, like her life was in danger and rapidly started threatening to call the police. And her clear narrative was that his just presence there and his just asking her to not walk her dog in the bramble was abuse. But it was, there was nothing abusive about it, not even close. And yet she could have used it to call the police to involve the state to, you know, assert a narrative in which like, like his mere presence there was like abusive to, to, to her in a sense. And anyway, there's a whole amazing section on like uh, Israel and how Israel perpetuates a narrative of itself as, you know, like uh, that, that Palestine, that, you know, just Palestinian resistance or the palace, the presence of Palestinians is, um, a, is a kind of abuse, um, which is obviously completely false and constructed, but is very, very effective in a lot of ways, just geopolitically. Um, you know, I won't say that I like agreed at every step of the way with everything that Shulman says in this book. There's definitely, you know, it's a it's a provocative book. It's at times a challenging book. Um, but I do think it's like a really important book and more than just important, you know, like the gentrification of the mind. It's also just a very, very compelling read like at every it's not some dry academic text where she's just like laying this, these things out in some kind of clinical way and like like stating her conclusions in in dry terms no it's all drawn very vividly on like lived experience lived research um and you know brought to life through like just uh in a in a very vivid uh and and engaging way yeah i actually started reading it based on your suggestion carolyn and mm. i i'm only read a tiny bit of it but i was fascinated at like the nuance of the argument um and yes. also how she, like you were saying, how she goes, like the her thesis applies both to individual and nation states and everything in between that it's like, right. it's very broad ranging um, mm -hmm. point that she's trying to make that I yeah. think is really fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 All right. That's it. Ebony, top that. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Was it Teen Witch? Um, that had the girl rapping and she was like, top that. Okay, y'all, I'm not, this is not a fever dream. Somebody look it up on YouTube. I think it was Teen Witch. Anyway, my freak out was um, a Twitter thread that I actually um, saw this morning. This dude named John Frankensteiner on, on oh, yeah. Twitter. Mm -hmm. And it was a selection of <laughs> a bit of Orson Welles talking shit about other filmmakers and it is oh i love orson welles talking shit about other filmmakers. oh my god so I, had, I had never come across any of this so just real quick um he opens the thread by sharing this conversation orson welles um is having about woody allen and he's saying he is arrogant like all people with timid person you know what i'm not even going to read it because i'm not going to do justice to it you have to imagine orson wells <laughs> saying this i mean and this dude you know by this point like an elder statesman you know considered an auteur right i mm. love people who are unafraid to tell you exactly what they think who have reached yes. that point in their lives and in their careers right. where they are either unafraid of reprisals or there will be no reprisals you know there's there's no mm. point right 
The honesty, the transparency, the, you know, mm. unmasking of the king, the revealing that the king has no clothes, you know, I, it's, mm. it's delectable. It is delicious. And he spares no one, you know, so oh, it's, uh, yeah. it's, or it's, uh, it's Woody Allen, it's mm. John Landis. He tells this great thing about how John Landis kept sending him notes on this film that he was doing. And he says that he phoned me to give me advice on the script the day he was indicted. <laughs> Which is just amazing to me. Anyways, I'm going to, I think I shared, um, Anita, the the link to the Twitter thread, but it is absolutely worth worth checking out. Orson Welles on Jean-Luc So this Jean is interesting, right? Huh? Like, who does that today? I was thinking about- That's um, the thing. No one does. It's, what's it's his name did the right? whole, like, uh, what's his name did that whole thing about how Marvel movies aren't cinema or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we have Martin Scorsese who refreshingly, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, d- says what he thinks about Marvel films. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but again, yeah, it, it yeah. takes the Scorsese, right? Like, no one is Well, Orson to... Welles was that then, right? Yeah, like, you know, so like, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's nothing you can do to Martin Scorsese, no matter how mad you get at him. Like, Marvel, they can't affect his career, right? But... It is a business decision for how many people feel this way about the filmmakers yeah. that are out there, even the people that, you know, at, at whose altars we maybe currently worship. But you just can't say this kind of stuff. It's just refreshing to have someone have absolutely no holds bars, you know, like just not not afraid to tell you. I think everything you think about these people is ridiculous. They're a bunch of fucking assholes. I tried to fight him at a party. He's full of shit. He's a bad actor. He's a bad director. Just chef's kiss, Orson Welles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, all right. My freak out is in honor of our 200th anniversary. I would like to uh, recant. I don't know. I mm-hmm. so I feel like there we've talked about this, right? Where sometimes you watch a movie or play a game and like it doesn't you don't see it yet or you don't mm-hmm. get it or yeah. you don't whatever. And then like you watch it mm-hmm. again and you feel differently or time makes you think about it. And so one of the problems with how quickly we need to form opinions is that, right? Is that like we're not letting things sink in in the same way? Um, And I was thinking about how – so we did an episode on The Old Guard, and that's the Greg Rucka um, comic book about um, immortals – um, kind of superhero-ish, but immortals. and With with Charlie Theron, right? Yep. And I – I believe I said I didn't like it and that I don't like Charlize Theron as like a strong female character and that I think she's very flat in those roles and blah, blah, blah. Something about this movie keeps like calling to me. Mm-hmm. And so I've watched it two more times. So I've watched it three times now. And I like, it's not like I'm like, this is amazing cinema, but there's something about it that really does it for me. And like the story and the like, the torturedness and the like mm-hmm. the questions it raises about like what would you be like if you were alive for 12,000 years or whatever you know what i mean like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. all of that and what would he, what would you be like if you found out that you weren't going to die or what if you were alive for that long and then you're about to die like what does that mean right um i i like those questions are appealing to me um and i realized in rewatching it a bunch that I really like Charlie Theron in it. Like, I think she's really fucking great in it. And I was like, why, why this, but not that, right? Like, why, why am I changing my mind? And I think some of it is that the, the cold stoicness makes logical sense to me because of the, who the character is in this world. Mm-hmm. It's not someone who's like 30 and has seen some shit and is now like 
cold or whatever. It's someone who's like five bajillion years old and has seen everything. Um, and there's a line in the movie where one of the other characters says about her that like she has forgotten more ways to fight than armies will ever learn. And like, I don't know. And so, and I, so anyways, I just, I feel like I have come to a new on her and in this movie. And I think the fight scenes are fucking amazing. Like I really like the fight choreography in it. And I think she like to be able to embody someone who is so skilled um, and so smooth, I think in the way that she does is a really a testament to her skills. So on this 200th you're gonna episode, make me, you're going to make me rewatch the old guard, which I did like, you know, on, uh, you know, I've only seen it the one time, although I really was so disturbed by the, um, the idea that her, her lover from before, correct me if I'm wrong, had been like consigned to like a stone coffin or something at the bottom of the ocean. And so like she has to, she dies over and over again over the course of like 5,000 years. That like fucked with my yeah. spirit. I that's, couldn't. That's like one of like, the most horrifying things. I, yeah. One can imagine. And I'm a little right? bit worried yeah. about if they do make a second one that like, she's probably the main villain in it. Cause mm-hmm. they have the mm-hmm. little cameo, the like post credit right. scene with her. And like, that's one of those things too, where I'm like, Oh no, like, crazy woman whatever but also like, like justified yeah <laughs> you know yeah like yeah in this way that is like so how do you portray that what does that look like i mean it's a choice to even have had that but um yeah i don't know i so i've been thinking about that a lot like i've been re-watching movies that i didn't necessarily like before or just watching things that i probably wouldn't have gravitated towards and and try and i don't know just trying to find more in them yeah. than i would and yeah, yeah. it's been an oh. interesting experience I know. Yeah. All right. Good for you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, friend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ebony and Carolyn, uh, do you want to plug anything? You want to tell people where you live now that you're guests formally? Where we live? Yes. So, like, live <laughs> mail digitally. can be addressed too. <laughs> um, listen, y'all, I'm at the same place I always am at Ebony Astor on Twitter. Actually, I'm there a lot less frequently now because I am one of those people that's just constantly, constantly on TikTok. I don't post there whatsoever. Oh, really? It's ridiculous how much I'm on there, either looking at pictures of kittens or, you know what? I'm not even going to tell you. I don't go. I I don't go on TikTok because I was on it for like two weeks during the pandemic, and then I was like, "Fuck this." And then now it's like a trash dump and my algorithms are so like fat phobic and just awful. Ooh, so wow. Ebony, will you send me a curated, like just send me the, like the highlights. Absolutely. I mean, yes. it's, it's a lot like my Twitter feed, right? So it's probably the people I follow are probably 90% black creators. So I think that helps my algorithm, right? Like I, I miss a lot of the other bullshit, but yeah, absolutely. Cause there's some people on that app. Woo, talented. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Carolyn? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, I'm Carolyn at Carolyn Michelle on Twitter. That's probably the, and, and I tweet way too much now. <laughs> like I have only become more absorbed in Twitter, partially because like for my current job, I, I feel like I kind of have to keep, you know, a lot of maybe stories break, news breaks. Just I have to be aware of the cultural conversations that are happening on on Twitter. So I, you know, but it's definitely become more even more, uh, you know, uh, something that I, I'm addicted to lately, which is not great. And I'm con- conscious of that. I'm trying to kind of mitigate that to some degree. 
yeah, you know, I mean, I I work for Kotaku.com. I don't, I don't, I'm a managing editor. I don't put up much writing of my own because I'm very busy being a managing editor. But, you know, I, I do think that of late, we've been doing some really great reporting. I'm very proud of some of the reporting some of our writers have been doing on things like um, just, uh, um, you know, labor and unionization um, struggles in the industry, uh, things like the Act- Activision Blizzard uh, lawsuit. We've had some really interesting reporting lately on on Nintendo. Um, you know, I'm just very proud of of the, the the work that we do in in that regard to kind of um, uh, you know shine a light on some things that are really happening in the industry. So you know, I encourage folks to. I'm not I'm not saying every. Whatever. I encourage folks to to visit Kotaku.com from time to time. Give us a read. Awesome. Hmm. Cool. Well, our show is engineered by Rob Para. Carrie Stimson provides technical support, artwork by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye, y'all.